Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now... Have you ever been on a private plane? I have not. Uh, You've got to be a bigger deal than me to get that sort of thing. I want to introduce you to two very important people who have had their own private plane. These two, let's show them, are Little Gray and Little White. They are beluga whales, and they used to live in an aquarium in Shanghai, but now they're going to be re-released into the Arctic Ocean, which is their natural habitat. This is why last year they received a private flight to Iceland on their very own 747. The in-flight attendants wore scuba suits, the in-flight snack were herring, and there was a wide selection of movies to choose from. They, they felt like Free Willy was a bit on the nose, and there was a lot of other options, though. There was Whaley Wonka's Chocolate Factory, Humpback to the Future, one, two, and three, and, of course, the favorite, The Porpoise Bride. Huh? Huh? They, they considered watching something a little scary, so they, they tried out, you know, good whale hunting, but it was a little bit too much. And they eventually settled on It's a Blubberful Life. Classic, classic. All right, in all seriousness, the reason they were headed to Iceland in particular is because they have a beluga whale sanctuary there. This is a place that's connected to the ocean, but the, the whales can't get out. And it's a place where they uh, help whales that have lived in captivity all their life learn how to thrive in the open sea. So they get them used to colder temperatures, and they help them learn to how, to how to hold their breath longer underwater. They expand their diet. They help them build up more blubber. Uh, they get them used to other sea life that they've never encountered before, crabs and shellfish and other things. And they do all of this just so that they can thrive in the environment that they were made for. See, after a lifetime in artificial environments, they need to be reconditioned just so they can go where they belong, just so they can go to their natural habitat. This is what spiritual disciplines do for us. Human beings were made for God. We were made for God. We are made for his presence. His kingdom, it turns out, is our natural habitat. And that's why it was such good news. When Jesus showed up and said, the kingdom of God has arrived and one day it will come in full, this is amazing because we are going back to where we belong. But The problem is we still experience the artificial conditions created by sin. And we have been so shaped by the rhythms and routines and the environment of the sinful world that we don't know how to live in the kind of world we were actually made for. And so what spiritual disciplines do is they recondition us for our true home. This is what we've been talking about all summer. We've been looking for these rhythms, these routines, these habits that shape our hearts, that help us live in the open seas of God's kingdom rather than the captivity of the sinful world. And today, the spiritual discipline we're talking about is one of the most counterintuitive ones for our current world, our current environment. But it's actually one of the very best for acclimating our hearts to the atmosphere of the kingdom. It's the rhythm, the habit of generosity. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. So if you go about three quarters of the way into the Bible, you should be pretty close to it. Matthew is a gospel. That means it's one of the four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And Matthew chapter 6 is right smack in the middle of the most famous speech that Jesus ever gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. 
And even if you are not a Christ follower, this is a section of the Bible that's worth reading, uh, simply because of how influential it's been. Uh, everybody from Gandhi to Martin Luther King Jr. have been inspired by it. Uh, people who are, are not followers of Christ, people who are followers of Christ. It's, it's some of the most famous sayings in the world come from this speech. And so the section that we're going to be looking at, uh, Jesus is talking about one of the most significant spiritual topics there is. He's talking about money. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you collected all of the things that the New Testament says about money, and you just put them on a page and you just read them out loud, it's pretty startling. Because Jesus and the apostles are always giving really strong warnings about money. It's the sort of thing that if I just said the things that they said without telling you I was quoting Jesus, some of you would get angry, Many of you would write letters. Some of you would leave our church. It's that startling. But there are, there are dozens of examples of this. I just want to give you a couple more here. Uh, one thing that the Apostle Paul said, he said, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Or take this warning from Jesus. Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich. It's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are strong words, right? And our instinct is to try and soften them, to, to try to ignore them, find a loophole or an exception. But the message is too consistent for us to brush it aside. I remember when I first got my driver's license, I would take out the family car, and my parents would do what most parents do in that sort of situation. They'd call out, you know, friendly, you know, hey, don't forget about this on the way out the door, you know? They'd be like, well, hey, you know, be careful backing out the driveway, or, you know, it's snowing, so watch your speed, or, you know, Michelle's in the car, so, you know, pay attention. I know she's pretty, but keep your eyes on the road, and they'd, they'd warn me about all sorts of things. And when I was in a bad mood, in my mind, I'd be like, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to drive. When I was, you know, in a better spirits, I'd still kind of brush it off and be like, yeah, yeah, I, okay, I know, you know, that's for other people, but I'm a pretty good driver, so don't worry about me. But it wasn't that my parents were trying to control me. They weren't trying to criticize me. They simply knew the risks, right? And they wanted me to be safe. The, the fact is this, cars are dangerous. They are. They are useful. They are necessary. They are fun. But if you cannot appreciate how dangerous a car is, you should not be trusted to use one. Money is the same way, works the same way. Jesus gives us these warnings in the New Testament because if you don't take seriously the danger that money poses to you, you could end up hurting other people, destroying your life, wreaking all sorts of havoc in the world. And according to Jesus, the primary danger of money comes from how money shapes you, how money shapes you. Jesus knows how money affects people. We, we tend to think of money as kind of a neutral thing. You use money to do things, but what we forget is that money does things to us. And Jesus highlights three things that money does. First, he says this. He says, money makes you anxious. 
Money makes you anxious. I almost don't need to prove this, okay? If I did a show of hands right now, like in the last two weeks, how many of you worried about money in some way? There'd be more hands up than down, right? Right? And this has nothing to do with how much money you have either. If you don't have money, you're worried about how you're gonna get money. And if you do have money, you're worried about losing your money. This is why Jesus says this in verse 19. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. He's saying, look, if you put your money, if you put your treasure in something that could be taken away, that's perishable, you're always going to worry about it. It's going to make you anxious. Money makes you anxious. Second thing he warns us about is he says money blinds you. Money blinds you. There are two very weird verses here right in the middle, verse 22 and 23. Let me read them again. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Okay, it's a strange metaphor, but if you think about it a second, I'm sure you can figure it out, okay? How does your body get light? Where does it come from? Through your eyes, right? So all of the visual data that you use, that all your body parts use to navigate the world, it comes through your eyes. If your eyes are not receiving that visual information, it does not matter if the sun is out or the lights are on, the rest of your body, you know, you might as well be in the dark because it's not getting that information. What does it have to do with money? Well, there's a phrase here that's not translated very well in English. It's a little bit tricky. When it says your eye is unhealthy, it says if your eye is evil. Now, the evil eye is an idiom in Mediterranean culture, even up to this day. And it's the idea of when you look at something with envy, you're jealous, you're, you covet something, so you're looking at it with that evil eye. And, and what Jesus is saying is if you are the sort of person who looks at the world through envious eyes, or we, if we might say it this way, through an economic lens, you're always thinking about, what can I get out of this situation? What will this cost me? What, what can this person do for me? If you've always got an eye to profit, you are distorting your vision. Jesus says the person who's always thinking about the bottom line is not seeing their situation accurately. They are blinding themselves to things they need to see. So you, you look at the world that way and you don't see the people in front of you for who they are because you're always measuring them in terms of profit, in terms of money. You're, you're blinded to the difference between a need and a want. You, you don't see the way your use of money is affecting the world around you, the way it's affecting the poor, the way it's affecting the environment. You don't see the purposes of God in a situation, the ways that you can love and serve and grow and learn because you're always thinking, what's in it for me? You're blinding yourself. It warps the way you see everything. Third thing that Jesus warns us about is this, is that money controls you. Money controls you. Look at verse 24 again. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus pulls no punches here. He talks about this in terms of slavery, in terms of slavery. He says, you will be controlled by something. You will be controlled either by God or by money, but it's not going to be both. One of those is going to determine your behavior and your attitudes and your, your orientation in life, but it's got to be one or the other. And we, we hear this warning. We think, you know, of course, Jesus has got to warn some people about this, you know, but it's usually somebody else. Someone's got more money than me, right? Like they need this. Scrooge McDuck over there swimming in a swimming pool of cash. Like that's the guy that Jesus is talking about. He's serving money for sure. But the warning applies to any of us. Even if you don't have a lot of money, money can dominate your thoughts, whether you're thinking about the money you have or the money you don't have. Money shapes your career choices. How much time you decide to spend at work, what you buy, where you choose to live. 
it shapes the way you relate to people. The, the studies show that most people don't know a lot of people outside of their socioeconomic strata. So that means that money is controlling who you're friends with and who you choose to marry. And the people that you admire, you know, that you like, oh, I want to be like them. And the people that you judge, like, eh. The people that you listen to, their opinion matters. I'm going to take their advice. And the people you dismiss, they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus knows this. He knows how this controls us. And he sees how money has a grip on our lives. And he wants to set us free. See, this is the thing you've got to understand. When Jesus gives these warnings, he's not doing it so that we feel guilty. He's not trying to make us feel bad about money. That's not what he's doing. He wants to set us free. He sees the way that we relate to money, and it's messing up most of our lives. It stresses us out. It strains marriages and family relationships and friendships. It, it drives and fuels our addictions. It crowds out the other things that would bring meaning and value and, and really give us life. And Jesus is simply saying, aren't you tired? Aren't you worn out of that? Don't, don't you want something more? Aren't you tired of letting money dominate you? Fortunately, he offers us an alternative. Jesus gives us a way to avoid these effects that money can have on us. He kind of uses a judo move, kind of using the, the momentum of money to break the power of money over us. It, it boils down to this principle. Your heart follows your money. Your heart follows your money. Jesus says this in verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is like one of the, the secret principles of the way the world runs, okay? You gotta learn this. Where your money is, there your heart will be also. And there's two ways to understand this phrase, okay? Uh, the first one is the one that I kind of instinctively thought it meant when I first read this years ago. It's the idea that wherever your heart is, whatever you care about, that's where your money goes, right? Like, so if you care about something, you're gonna spend money on it. So you love your grandkids, and so what do you do? You spoil your grandkids, like you spend money on them, right? You care about politics, so you, you fund a political campaign. You value your health, so you buy workout equipment and special food for your diet. Where, where, what you care about, what you, uh, uh, you know, are invested in, that's where your money goes. And so you can say all day long, you say, oh, I care about this, I'm passionate about this thing, but the proof is in the spending. So what you really care about, when you have a decision of how you can spend your money, not the things that you're forced to do, you know, bills and taxes you can't avoid, but what do you do with the money that you have uh, the liberty to spend it on? Well, you spend it on whatever your heart loves. Your money goes where your heart is. Now, that's one way to understand this. I actually think Jesus has another idea in mind as well, and I think it's kind of a deeper insight here. It's not just that your money goes where your heart is, but your heart goes where your money is. Your heart goes where your money is. Think about this for a minute. I think you know this is true. When the Bible talks about your heart, here's what you should imagine, okay? And you've probably heard me say this before. Your heart is an arrow sticking out of your chest. And that arrow points at whatever you're chasing after. So it directs where your thoughts and your feelings and your, your actions, all of your orientation in life, it goes after whatever that arrow on your chest is pointing to. It kind of directs your focus and things, and you're chasing after it. And so here's what happens with money. That arrow on your chest, if you put money someplace, boom, the arrow bounces over to it. So you throw the money, boom, it goes over there. Money goes over there. It, even just for a little while, the attention of your heart gets controlled by where your money goes. So your, your feelings and your thoughts start to go towards that. And I can show you this in a very simple example, okay? You ever gotten a new tool? You bought a new uh, tool or maybe a kitchen gadget? Okay, so for the next few days or the next few weeks, what happens? You find yourself thinking about it, right? You're like, oh yeah, when do I get to use that again? That's gonna, oh, it's so cool, it looks nice. I, where, where are you gonna put it? And you bring it up in conversation. Like you don't normally bring up tools in conversation, but you're like, hey, I got this new thing. And you're like, it kind of bubbles up, right? And you're, you're looking for excuses to use it. You're like, oh, 
you're making cereal, I see. You need a food processor for that? Huh? Huh? Just whatever you can do, right? So eventually, your heart bounces back, you're not thinking about it as much. But here's what happens. If there is some area of your life where you spend money repeatedly, your heart bounces there and bounces there until it sticks. And it's focused on that more than it's not. So if you frequently purchase clothes, your heart is going to be invested in your wardrobe. If you spend a lot on home improvements, your heart's going to be with your house. If you regularly sponsor a child in poverty, your heart's going to care more about poverty. And this is true, actually, of things that we didn't actually choose to spend our money on. If you've got to make loan payments or pay off credit cards, and you're, you're, you're doing that again and again, your thoughts, your emotions are going to be fixated on your debt. It's going to dominate your heart. And this is also true about things that are not material. It doesn't always have to be a thing that your heart fixates on. So if you spend money regularly to try and impress other people, your heart is going to be fixated on the opinions of other people. If you spend money to try to influence or manipulate other people, your heart is going to start to crave more power and control. If you spend money on entertainment and relaxation, your heart is going to fixate on your comfort and your pleasure. Where you put your money, that's where your heart goes. And so we've got these two truths. Your money goes where your heart is and your heart goes where your money is. And in between them, what we've got is this kind of feedback loop that this creates. The more we spend our money on things, the more our heart goes to them. And the more our heart goes to them, the more we spend money on those things around and around and around. It shapes what we care about. Now, here's the thing. You're going to do this with something. This is not something you can avoid, okay? This is not a spiritual discipline you can opt out of. Your money is going to go to something, and therefore your heart's going to do that, and you're going to get in one of these loops. This is the cycle that causes all of the problems that Jesus warns us about. But this cycle is also the solution, okay? So this is the judo move here, okay? You can use the same dynamic to free your heart. If money shapes your heart, then use money to set your heart free from the love of money. Use money to set your heart free from the love of money. Or to put it another way, the best way to change your heart is to put your money where you want your heart to be. The best way to change your heart is to put your money where you want your heart to be. So is there anything that you wish you were passionate about? You're like, I really should care more about this thing. I, I really, you know, I, I, should, I should have a bigger heart for, for this or that. Maybe the reason your heart isn't actually growing for that thing is you've got no money in the game on that. That the best way to change your heart is to put your money where you want your heart to be. I think this principle explains the two things that the Bible tells us we ought to give our money to. Again and again, the Bible talks about two different things. Why does the Bible tell us repeatedly that we ought to give to people in need? Okay, so if you're following along with Bible Savvy right now, we are currently reading the book of Deuteronomy. And you have probably noticed this kind of phrase that's come up again and again and again and again. It talks about the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. Over and over again, Moses, like the poor, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, they, over and over and over again. Why does God keep saying, my people should give to these groups of people? Because God knows that the only way our hearts are going to actually care about other human beings is if we are, are, are sending our treasure to them. If we're saying we are going to give, and therefore our hearts will follow, and we will actually care and, and want to be invested in their well-being. That Jesus describes this as investing in the kingdom. That Jesus says that the groups that are marginalized right now, the people that people overlook right now, when the kingdom comes, they are going to be brought into the center. They are going to be elevated. Blessed are the poor, Jesus says, at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Well, why does he say that? Because this is what the kind of flip that's going to happen in the kingdom. So he says, if you want to invest in something eternal, this is where you should invest. 
and the people who are going to be eternally significant in God's economy. That's the first thing that he tells us to invest in. The second thing that God says to use our money for is to support the ministry of our local church. But why does God want us to give the first 10% of our income to the ministry of our church? It's because God wants our hearts invested in this family and this mission. See, the primary way God's at work in the world is through local churches all over the world. This is the primary avenue that God uses to share the good news of Jesus, to meet tangible needs in communities, to draw people who are lonely into community, to help people find healing and growth. It happens. This is where God is working primarily, through local churches. And so when we pool our money together and we we invest in these things, our hearts get more deeply committed to God and what he's doing and to the people that he's put around us. And so these are the two things God commands us to do with our money, to to, uh, give to the marginalized and the ministry of our local church. And the reason he does this is because this is what God cares about. God's heart is near to the brokenhearted, and it's near to his people. And so he says, if you want your heart to be where my heart is, that's where you should put your treasure, with those two groups. So here's the question we got to reflect on. What would happen, what would actually happen to us if generosity was a rhythm in our lives, like a regular, consistent rhythm? Think about the way Jesus says money shapes you. If money makes you anxious, generosity makes you secure. If if spending money on things that are temporary makes you insecure, if you invest in kingdom things that cannot be taken away, it makes you secure. Jesus says money blinds us. We, We can't see the things God is doing around us. But generosity opens our eyes and we start to see the world the way God cares about it. Money controls us, but generosity sets our hearts free. Here's what happens. When you give, you start to experience a sense of abundance because there's this tangible experience where you realize, hey, I gave something to help this other person or this cause or or whatever else it is, and I still was okay. And you start to realize, there's actually more than enough. There's enough for my needs and for the needs of somebody else. There's abundance here. Uh, Generosity, it it also makes you compassionate because all of a sudden you're paying attention to the needs of somebody that isn't you. And you're like, man, I'm starting to care about things I never cared about before. Compassionate. You realize generosity also makes you courageous, courageous, because you're trusting God with something that's valuable to you. You say, God, I'm going to give up control of this, and I'm going to trust you with what happens to it. You become a courageous person. Now, I don't know about you, but being courageous and compassionate and having a sense of abundance, like, that's basically what I want to be like, right? Like, that's, that's what I want to experience every single day, to be that sort of person. I I am so convinced, so convinced, that if you want to be an open-hearted, joyful person, the best way to do it is to practice generosity in all areas of your life. Here's how Jesus put it. It is more blessed to give than receive. That that Greek word that's translated blessed can also be translated happy. It is more happy to give than receive. Secular psychological studies have shown this again and again. Uh, The general consensus is this. There are three ways to use your money that will actually make you happy. You want to know what they are? Okay, this is is like good stuff here, okay? First is this, buying experiences rather than things, okay? So if you've got the option of going on vacation or buying a new car, the vacation will make you happier for longer. Second is spending money in order to free up time for things that you care about. Okay, that's the other thing that makes people happy. But the biggest one, okay, the biggest thing that using your money makes you happy is what they call pro-social spending, pro-social spending. This is spending money on somebody that is not you, okay? So it could be giving to a charity, it could be supporting your local religious community, it might be uh, buying someone a meal or a gift, something that's for somebody else, not you. That is the, the kind of use of your money that makes people the most happy. This is secular psychological studies have shown this again and again. Generous people, on average, are happier than people who are not generous. 
And they have shown this across income brackets. They've, they've tested this with, with the people who have the most money and the people who have the least, the, the poorest of the poor. They've said when, they, when they're generous, they're happier. They've, they've shown this across different cultures and uh, different continents. They've shown this across ages. Okay, so they, they studied toddlers and, and their, their attitudes when they are, are sharing and giving and when they are not. And they've, they've shown it uh, with people at the end of their life. They've shown that people who look back on their life and can say, I was generous with what I had, my, my, my money, my time, my, my, my attention. When I was generous, they look back on their life and they're more satisfied than people who weren't. That generosity, it does all sorts of great things. It increases life expectancy. It reduces workplace burnout. It encourages better relationships. It gives you a greater sense of meaning and purpose. What, it is, what is it that Jesus said? It is more blessed to give than receive. We didn't need the studies. Jesus already figured it out. Seriously, I don't know any truly generous people who are miserable. I just don't. I just don't. In fact, every truly generous person I know, the kind of people who have worked this into both their budget and their daily attitude in life, generous people are the sort of people I most admire. Not just about their generosity, about other things in their life. I'm like, these are, these are great people. Like, this is the kind of person I want to be around. This is the kind of person I want to be. When I grow up, I want to be like them. And the common denominator is, they're generous with what they've been given. I'm telling you this, the things that you want in life, to be free from anxiety, to, to be actually uh, connected with other people, to have, have a sense that you're making a difference, to have open-hearted joy, these things come from being generous. Of course, eventually you've got to ask the question, all right, practically speaking, what are we talking about? How do I practice generosity? I'm not going to be overly prescriptive about this today for a couple of reasons. First is this. Each one of you is in a different financial situation, okay? So some of you, you've got a lot of money, steady income, good investments. But some of you are drowning in debt and you're struggling just to pay your bills. Most of us are somewhere in the middle, but we're all in a different place. And all of us, all of us are called to be generous, but the practical application of generosity looks different depending on where you're at financially. This is why our church has a ministry called Financial Freedom. It's a, a way for us to help people figure out how not to be controlled by their money, to experience freedom, to not let it have a grip on your heart. Uh, and there are lots of different ways that this happens. We offer classes like Financial Peace University, which is great for anybody, uh, but it's especially good if you're trying to get your finances on a solid footing, uh, a biblical footing. Uh, another session of this that starts in just less than a month. Uh, you can sign up for that today. Uh, we also, throughout the year, we offer seminars, uh, different tools to help you with estate planning, you know, figuring out, like, okay, what do I do? What's going to happen to my stuff when I'm gone? Or tax-wise giving, you get to the end of the year, and you're like, well, what, what should I do about these things? We, we have budget coaches, you know, help, can actually sit down with your finances and walk you through it and say, hey, I'm going to give you some expert advice and some biblical wisdom about this and help you figure those things out. I would highly recommend, wherever you're at, uh, to check out what we have to offer on our website, ccclife.org slash financial freedom, slash financial freedom. The other reason I'm not going to kind of tell you exactly what to do is I would rather let God do that. I, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, say, God, what do you want me to do? What's my next step in generosity? Because it is so easy when a preacher gets up and talks about money to just write it off. Because immediately you're like, well, yeah, of course. He says that. He works for the church. I mean, they're always asking for money. No, no. I'm not asking you for anything. What, what I'm saying is I think God has something for you. I think God wants to make you a joyful, open-hearted person, and he knows what the next step is for you, okay? So he, he's going to tell you what you need to do. But here's the thing. You've got to ask him and then say, I'm going to do what he says. So actually listen, because he's got something for you. It's not like there's like, well, no, you get, you get a pass on this one. He knows what your next step, the thing that's going to stretch you just enough and start giving you that, that experience of joy and open-heartedness that, that he wants to give you. 
but you got to be willing to do it. So whatever it is, I just want you to figure out that you're going to take a next step. It, it might be, you know, taking the challenge of saying, the next 90 days, I'm going to try tithing, see what happens. Or you're going to automate your giving. You're going to say, well, you know what, I don't want this to be a random thing. I want it to be a regular thing. Or you're going to look at your budget and say, where's just a little bit of money that I can set aside each week just to help someone out, you know, just to give to something I care about, just to, you know, do something that's not for me. It might be as simple as this. You might be like, well, this week, I'm going to buy someone lunch because you have never spent money on someone that's not you, and that feels like a stretch. And you're like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to buy a meal for another person. L listen to God. He's got a next step for you. And see, once you start doing that, how it starts to change your heart. Because I am convinced, I am convinced that if you practice generosity, you will become a more joyful, open-hearted person. It's going to happen. Why? It happens because being generous makes us like God. It makes us like God. God is the most generous being there is. God is the most open-hearted person there is. God is the most joyful person there is. Have you ever thought about that? No one is happier than God. And no one has ever given more than God. Uh, verse 21 says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you think that principle is true about God? I think it is. I think where God puts his treasure is where God's heart is. So we need to ask the question, where did God put his treasure? Where did God put his treasure? Do you know what's most valuable to God? Do you know what he prizes above everything else? Do you know what God's treasure is? It's his son. It's his son. You remember when Jesus was baptized? He comes up out of the water, and the Father declares for all to hear, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He just loves Jesus so much. This is the secret in the, of the universe, this eternal truth that God's greatest delight is in his son. Jesus is the treasure of God. He is the wealth of heaven. And where did God send his son? Where did God put his treasure? With us. Can you believe it? With us. The son of God became one of us. He became human. He united himself with us forever. And he spent his entire life giving and serving and helping and healing. He came giving of himself. Not just giving of himself, but giving himself. This is what he came to do. He came to spend himself, literally, he came to pay a price. He came to pay for our debt. He gave himself to buy our freedom. He purchased us with his own blood. He spent his life of infinite value in order to have us. Can you believe that? Where is God's treasure? Where did God invest his own heart? With you and me. With us. How small and stingy is our view of God that we would ever imagine that he was holding back from us, that we'd ever think that he wasn't giving us all that he could. But oh, how enormous, how huge is the love of God for us, that he would give his everything for us. In Romans, Paul says this, he says, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Like, well, how is he going to keep holding back? He has given us his very best. He's given us himself. Of course, he's going to take care of us. Of course, he's going to be there for us. He's never going to let us go. He's shown that by giving us Jesus. And now God invites us, as people who have been given everything, to be people who give freely. Like, he gave us his heart so that our hearts can become as free and generous and joyful as his. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be like that? I sure do.